right? So rather than the kind of questions of like, well, what makes someone go travel to another country to fight in jihad and, and risk their lives? Um, I sort of take the starting point of, well, it's actually not that surprising and analytically not even that interesting to ask why a, a certain number of Muslims, relatively small in the grand scheme of things, would feel compelled to help defend fellow Muslims in Bosnia. This past week marks 20 years since the opening of the infamous detention centre, Guantanamo Bay. It remains a symbol of the hollowness of the very values that underpin the liberal world order. Camp X-Ray was to house dangerous jihadists, a nebulous general term that is used to describe those foreign fighters that would for no explicable reason travel to distant parts of the world to fight other people's wars. Within time, the term came to explain a universal ideology. From Bosnia to Afghanistan, Palestine to Kashmir, those that crossed national boundaries to fight for an oppressed ummah were lumped into a singular narrative, stripped of acceptable political motives and reduced of their humanity. Of course, sensible Muslim opinion may strongly disagree with some or many of those who participated and participate in this transnational jihad mobilization. The methods of ISIS, for example, remain reprehensible. However, the lack of intellectual rigor with which Western policymakers and think tanks discuss this phenomenon surprises us all. This is the argument of my guest today, Dr. Daru Lee. Dr. Lee is a practicing lawyer and anthropologist who has written a brilliant book on global jihad mobilization in Bosnia. His book, titled The Universal Enemy, Jihad, Empire and the Challenge of Solidarity, challenges the prevailing narrative and attempts to ask more searching and important questions in the process. Joining us with Dr. Lee is Professor Overmir Anjum, who reflects on Dr. Lee's work and the broader themes that come from it. Dr. Anjum has begun one of the most exciting projects in the Muslim intellectual space today, bringing together academics and scholars to explore what he calls ummatic discourse and the need and requirement for a caliphate. As always, we have included a link to Dr. Lee's book and further reading in the show notes. Dr. Lee, Professor Anjum, thank you for joining me today. Now, Dr. Lee, I wanted to talk about your book, The Universal Enemy, Jihad Empire and the Challenge of Solidarity. I know Dr. Anjum has many questions about your work and um, he has uh, on a number of occasions uh, mentioned why your work is, is extremely important and uh, he's asked me and, and others to, to read your book. But uh, I want you to set it up for our readers who may not be familiar with your central argument. What brought you to Bosnia? Why did you write this book? And what are the main issues that arise out of your work? Thanks so much for having me on and for the opportunity to discuss these ideas. The, the motivating question or the motivating problem of this book, The Universal Enemy, is uh, this phenomenon of some call it transnational jihad, some call it global jihad, but essentially uh, the conflicts in recent decades where Muslims have traveled to other countries to participate in armed conflict on behalf of the Ummah, broadly speaking. Um, this is not 
all modern forms of jihad. And that's one thing that I think we can talk a little bit more about later, sort of what do we make of this category of jihad and what do we make of the category of jihadism. But I'm particularly interested in the transnational jihads because they have attracted so much notoriety. Um, they're perceived, of course, as a security threat. They are kind of you know, the, the primary target of the global war on terror. Um, but they also excite all sorts of debate analytically, normatively, among Muslims and non among non-Muslims as well. And I think it's because they combine certain ideas of Islamic piety, transnational mobility, and armed violence that they really disrupt kind of a baseline assumption that's shared by many non-Muslims and Muslims alike, which is that political violence really is only legitimate if it's carried out by nation states using armies that are composed primarily of the citizens of those states. And these jihad mobilizations don't fit that model, and therefore they are puzzling to some and scary to others. And the basic argument of the book is that rather than trying to, rather than seeing these jihad mobilizations simply as a problem to be solved, whether it's a security problem or problem in terms of how non-Muslims understand Muslims, the book proceeds from the hypothesis of, well, what is it that these jihads are supposed to be a solution to, right? How, are, how is it that they are thought of as a solution, which of course can be a flawed solution and one that can be critiqued. And the argument is that if we think of these jihad mobilizations as what I call universalist projects, um, it's a lot more helpful, and you can see a lot of things that you might not have otherwise, and you get out of the box of kind of the radicalization problem of, you know, how do we just think of, of these Muslims as security problems to be solved? So um, when I talk about them as universalist projects, I realize this is a little bit of a kind of anthropological argument, um, but what, what it really, you know, what I'm really getting at is to say, look, if we look at a place like Bosnia-Herzegovina, uh, and the war there in the 1990s. This was a conflict that attracted a lot of attention, sympathy, outrage from around the world in the 1990s. And it was best known as a site of Western-led international intervention, right? So you've got the largest ever UN peacekeeping force at the time. You've got all these NGOs. And um, at the same time, and what has been less appreciated, has been the range of activities by Muslims in the name of pan-Islamic solidarity that was happening at the same time. This includes aid work, this includes diplomacy, this includes education, but it also includes jihad. And what I noticed as someone who kind of spent the early part of their career in kind of the humanitarian and human rights NGO space is the parallels at work, right? In both cases, you have people traveling to this war zone in the name of a broader vision of humanity and having to deal with concrete difficulties and challenges that arise when they are trying to um, help a local population that's experiencing violence and mass atrocity um, and, and to overcome various forms of difference. Um, so that's really the, the sort of initial um, starting point. But then in, um, in spinning out this um, idea of universalism, I want to be very clear that this is a sort of bottom-up anthropological idea of universalism. And what I mean is it's about people trying to um, actualize this vision that's directed at all of humanity. So of course, it's not actually universal, in fact. 
And of course, it also includes its own um, flaws and exclusions and contradictions. And also that it's an attempt carried out by people in the real world. And people in the real world might um, uh, move between and engage in different universalist endeavors at the same time. Right. So the argument is not that like Islam is a universalism and the West is a different universalism and they're kind of going up against each other. Right. It's more about tracking the way that folks move between different ideas of universalism and more importantly, different practices of universalism. Right. So rather than the kind of questions of like, well, what makes someone go travel to another country to fight in jihad and and risk their lives? um, I sort of take the starting point of, well, it's actually not that surprising. And analytically, not even that interesting to ask why a a certain number of Muslims, relatively small in the grand scheme of things, would feel compelled to help defend fellow Muslims in Bosnia. I'm more interested in the challenges that they face. How do they reconcile this idea of of commitment to the ummah with national differences, racial, linguistic, uh, doctrinal differences? How do they practically face those challenges and negotiate them while at the same time doing so in in a world order that is, of course, dominated by the West? Right, where there is not parity or equality, how do they encounter uh, the UN peacekeepers? How are they uh, treated in the global war on terror? And and thinking about the sorts of overlaps and experiences um, that come with that. And as I said at, at the start, you come to uh, the subject as an anthropologist, and you, you've spoken about that briefly in in your answer there. Uh, in many ways, are you critiquing the way many political scientists and those in security studies departments have handled the subject of transnational jihad thus far? Yeah, this is a book about a jihad that is also a rejection of jihadism as a category and as an object of study. Um, and so I, I think your listeners are are probably pretty aware and pretty critical of a lot of the work that comes out of um, whether it's the academy or think tanks, you know, security studies, all of that stuff. Critiquing that work is important, but I also had to make a decision very early on that the book couldn't just be a critique. It also had to provide an alternative way of thinking about these movements, right? So it's, I think it's very true that a lot of the um, writing on this topic is inflected by kind of anti-Muslim animus and by the imperatives of, you know, essentially Western imperialism. Like, I think that's, you know, I think that critique is very valid. Um, But I also think it's important to um, have a way to intelligently study and talk about contemporary jihad practices and what people in the world are doing. And sometimes the critical account is so invested in critiquing the the discourse that's anti-Muslim that Essentially, at the end of it, what it what what happens is the the so-called terrorism expert, you know, can sort of nod and say, yeah, we acknowledge this critique, um, but we can just, you know, come up with a more refined version of what we're doing that will address this and we will still essentially dominate the discourse about these people. So um, that's why the book is definitely a critique of this body of work, but also tries to go beyond critique and to really demonstrate that through serious and empirical and rigorous research um, that you can come up with a better set of proposals. So the book is based on uh, years of, of research, including um, ethnographic life history interviews with participants in the jihad in Bosnia, 
um, and also um, primary source archival materials because the, the Arab Mujahideen in Bosnia um, they were quasi-integrated into a state army. So there's a, an archival paper trail that we have there that we, we don't have, for example, with the jihads in Afghanistan or Chechnya. Um, and, you know, it's based on, on you know, publications in, in Arabic and Bosnian, Urdu, uh, French, Italian. Um, essentially, what, what I want to emphasize is that, um, you know, rejecting security state discourses about contemporary jihad practices uh, doesn't absolve us from the responsibility to do real research and to get out there and figure out what was going on. Um, because in many ways, I think that is more, um, that's more devastating to what the so-called experts are doing, right? Because they fetishize, um, you know, research methods and empirical facts, even though, of course, you know, the quality of the research is often terrible. Um, but, you know, I, I wanted to to sort of demonstrate that, you know, it was possible to sort of in that very specific way of empiricism to play on that turf and to and to come up with something better. We've now had over 20 years of the war on terror. Has the United States finally moved on, uh, moved beyond this global jihad, transnational jihad mobilization? Has it moved beyond Islam as the major threat? We now have a, a state actor, China, that is the major concern of of American politicians and, and of course, the academy, security studies departments, political scientists are now uh, thinking and focusing on this new global threat. Uh, do you get a feeling that the Americans have moved away from uh, Islam and, and, and are now focused on, on China? Yeah, that's a great question and one that I'm struggling with all the time. Um, not only as someone who has devoted their career to opposing the war on terror, but also as um, a U.S. citizen of Chinese origin and kind of wondering <laughs> which internment camp I'm going to end up in. Um, and, you know, I think, it, I think it's a little bit of both. I think in, in some ways what happened is that the war on terror um, was, uh, was completely normalized. And I don't think that's changed. Um, and in fact, one of the interesting things about the Trump years is how the escalation of the kind of globalized counterinsurgency um, violence around the world um, was largely ignored because at least critics in the United States were so kind of caught up with what was happening on the domestic front. So on the one hand, yes, the war on terror has just it's been completely mainstreamed. It fulfilled its purpose in terms of reorganizing the American state and, and its imperatives. And, you know, it pervert, for a time, it provided a kind of... Um, master narrative for organizing American political life. I think in that sense, it has been superseded, right? So it's kind of ideological organizing function, the thing that, that everyone kind of has to respond to and relate to. I, I think that part, um, I think that has been surpassed. And I think Trump in many ways um, was the catalyst for that. The, what was interesting about the Muslim ban was the response because it was the first time that opposing um, anti-Muslim violence became a legitimate, uh, became a partisan issue essentially in the United States. Up until that point, um, it, there was, you know, there was really, I mean, people, folks forget this, but in during the, the George W. Bush administration, one of the few times that the Democrats were able to force Bush to change policy was um, in this, uh, the situation where I think the, the, 
the management of, of some ports in New York was going to be taken over by a company based in Dubai. And the Democrats just went off and had this whole, like, essentially insane anti-Muslim campaign um, that forced the, the forced the administration to change its, its policy. So it's quite, um, and that was around 2006, 2007. To, so to go from that to opposing the Muslim ban becoming a mainstream position um, in kind of the Democratic Party, I think that does signify a shift. Now, but that doesn't mean that somehow anti-Muslim violence is any less of a threat. I think it's what happened was that during the high point of the war on terror, um, anti-Muslim animus or anti-Muslim racism, and we can have a whole conversation about how to think about it as racism later, but that was in many ways um, the safety valve, right? The most politically acceptable way to channel the racist impulses and energies of a, of a white supremacist regime and imperial state. Part of what Trump did was to essentially uh, turn that spigot all the way to the left, right? And to give open expression to all of the other racial antagonisms that structure U.S. society, especially anti-Blackness, right? So in a weird way, by, by normalizing and mainstreaming the public expression of all of these other forms of violence, I think a lot of the energy that was otherwise directed at Muslims has kind of gone elsewhere. Um, so it doesn't mean that there's any less anti-Muslim racism or anti-Muslim animus. It's just that there's all of the other stuff that's, that's kind of out there and in many ways is much more um, connected to, to the basic structures of, of American society. So there's this weird way in which the war on terror is both over and not over at the same time. Um, I don't know to what extent um, the, the ruling elites in the United States really have managed to reorganize themselves um, around the lines of, of confronting China in the way that they did with the war on terror. Um, and I think that's also because the, the ruling elite in the U.S. is also fractured so much, right? Like the response to COVID, of course, is just the final you know, demonstration of just their inability to kind of get it together on certain types of issues, um, which of course is not really consolation either, right? It's just like a different kind of disaster. It's now been over 10 years of the Arab Spring. Do you believe that transnational jihad mobilization uh, is no longer viewed as a valid method by great numbers of Muslims. Uh, I'm thinking very much about the disaster of, of Syria and, and how uh, ISIS uh, took the mantle uh, of this type of jihad mobilization and, and the problems associated with ISIS. Do you think that in many ways now, uh, any good that may have come out of these transnational global uh, mobilizations that have now have now been lost with um, uh, with the failure, or at least what some would call the failure of the the last ten years of the Arab Spring. That's a great question. I I don't have a great answer to that. I I think that the kinds of transnational jihad mobilizations that that at least I'm interested in, you know, they're really a symptom of an international system that, on the one hand, claims to be able to um, enforce some idea of human rights and to resolve conflicts um, and to try to monopolize to itself the ability to, to have interventions, right? So the UN Security Council or, or, or NATO or what have you can say, okay, here's a war, we're going we're gonna to settle it by sending peacekeepers or doing something. And so there's a gap between that vision and the reality, right? Whereby 
many populations, especially Muslim populations, end up being, you know, end up facing all these mass atrocities. And then you have folks trying to organize an alternative or a supplement, right? I mean, that's essentially what the the Bosnia story that my book writes about sort of tells. Whether that's over or not, I'm, I think it just, I mean, it depends on a lot of factors, right? Like, you know, one would have expected, for example, for example, there was a lot of disillusionment after the fall of Kabul, whereby um, the Afghan Mujahideen factions started turning on each other and people who had supported the Afghan Jihad, you know, suddenly said, well, what was the point of this? You know, we, we, we gave all this money. There were volunteers who went and, you know, we thought we were establishing a sort of, you know, a proper Islamic state um, and, and look what happened. Right. So even, even in the Bosnia case, there was a lot of disillusionment that had to be argued against and argued through. So I imagine even now, you know, for every one person who points to, you know, what happened in Syria and Iraq as a sort of cautionary tale against jihad mobilization, there will be others who, who would argue otherwise. Right. I mean, we do, for example, there are mobilizations happening, um, especially in sub-Saharan Africa, right? So that's where a lot of the security, you know, people are kind of paying attention to these days. So there's a lot of just local um, variation in terms of, you know, to what extent um, can people travel to certain areas, to what extent are certain areas or certain causes getting attention, right? And there's this interesting way where um, uh, attention to crises and the distribution of outrage among Muslim communities is also kind of filtered through uh, a kind of Western dominated um, media sphere, right? But also cuts against it in some ways, right? Like it's been really interesting to see the general lack of response um, in the Arab world to what's happening in Xinjiang or East Turkestan, right? Um, and, and a widespread distrust of, of some of the narratives about what's happening there, precisely because, you know, the, the United States is, you know, is so keen um, to emphasize them. Um, so I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't count out that type of mobilization. I think the potentiality is, is always there. Um, and you know, whether folks are in the position to realize those opportunities is a different matter, whether there may or may not be States that will try to support it, um, because it can be strategically helpful is another kind of contingent factor that's there. But I think what's, what's important is that, you know, the, the potential is there, the idea is there and anyone who does it, um, even if they have to reinvent the wheel in some senses, they can still draw on this history. They can still draw on the models and the tropes and benefit from the, or, or, or try to depart from the debates that, that preceded them. Um, and I think that's something that, you know, that the book also tries to, to sort of, you know, um, you know, get us a handle on sort of understanding that and, and, and understanding its outlines. Thank you. And Ovimir, I would like to get your reflections on uh, Dr. Lee's book, please. Yeah, thank you very much for uh, for letting me join this conversation. Um, I was very excited to uh, learn about the book. I mean, the title, from the very title of the book, it was very clear that this isn't going to be just another book, um, because I think that the idea of universal is something that anthropologists just don't talk about, and it is not a popular thing to talk about. And to think of then uh, jihad as a kind of a universal thing, uh, one that's in somehow connected to universalism. I thought this was just a really uh, brilliant framing. So um, there are many, many things in the book that, that uh, I'd love to have Lee talk more about, but let me start with this central idea of universalism. 
and then jihad as not as terrorism but as universalism that's an idea that i get out of the book as something an underlying concern that we had to pay that we can take this jihad which this war and terror discourse and even before uh, has been so deeply associated with terrorism that effectively it's the lexical meaning of jihad is terrorism in the minds of many today, including many scholars. And, and let's provide this other category of enlightenment. You know, universalism is enlightenment. Universalism is reason. Universalism is what uh, the truth is about. And, and let's speak of jihad in those other terms by looking at a very sort of uh, anthropological phenomenon of what's happening in Bosnia. So tell us about that. Yeah, so let's, and, and this is why the, the anthropology angle is important. Um, anthropology as a discipline, you know, it's born from the colonial encounter, but it's also always been about criticizing universalism. Right. So like you said, you know, some folks, when they hear universalism, they think enlightenment, they think reason, they think, you know, good stuff, you know, puppies and kittens and stuff. Um, A lot of anthropologists, when they hear universalism, they think empire, they think capitalism, they think hypocrisy. Right. And uh, and, you know, what's I want to I want to hold both of these imperatives together. Right. So there's a couple of really common critiques of universalism. Right. One is that, okay, you take. Um, ideas that are supposedly universal, but they really come from a particular place like the West. And then you try to impose them on everyone else, right? Um, You've got, you know, the idea that, oh, uh, universalist projects are hypocritical, right? You come in the name of human rights, you say, maybe like, you know, the United States, you come in the name of human rights and democracy, but you actually are, you know, taking oil and so on. And that, those critiques of universalism are absolutely valid um, but they don't, they don't make something not universalist, right? Because again, when I talk about something as universalist as opposed to universal, it's not about like, oh, does this actually happen everywhere in the world or not? You can have five people who have a universalist idea and they maybe just haven't convinced other people about it. And that, you know, it may or may not be interesting to talk about them as as doing universalism, right? Um, but so many of the things, I mean, even like when we talk about, um, you know, in, in a field I'm more familiar with, think about human rights. So many um, parts of international human rights law started out because a small number of people, usually elites, lawyers said, okay, this is, this is a new human right. This applies to all of humanity. And even if, you know, you could take a poll of everyone on earth and they don't necessarily approve of it, um, it can still, through a certain set of processes, kind of take on that character, right, of trying, of speaking in the name of the universal, right? And that's the process that I'm kind of interested in. And that's a process that's always going to be um, contested and problematic, right? So when I talk about jihad, or this particular jihad, or these kinds of jihads as universalist, it's, um, you know, it, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't let them off the hook, for critique, but it kind of sets up a different kind of critique, right? Because the typical approach, as you said, you know, is just dismissal. It's not even critique. It's like, oh, these guys are terrorists. These guys are crazy. End of story, right? And then, of course, among um, some Muslims or people who write in sympathy with Muslims, there's that defensiveness, right? So, so much of the writing on the war on terror that that is critical also has a kind of like 
hesitation, like how do we talk about these folks, right? Or reassurance that like, well, of course they're terrible. Of course they're terrorists, but you know, just, just be, just be a little bit more judicious in how you talk about Muslims or Islam or whatever. And, you know, I, I also wanted to, 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 to avoid that kind of, um, that kind of critique, because I think it's quite, um, self-limiting as well. And to say, yeah, they're engaged in a universalist project. Universalist projects are often problematic, um, but that's okay. That's just that, but that moves the conversation to a different space. It's a different kind of debate than the sort of very, very kind of zero sum, um, highly charged kind of way that we are often talking about these things that then force us into a kind of defensiveness, right? And, and an inability to, to get at some of the harder questions. Okay, so I guess let me press the, the, this question a little further with, uh, I think in your comment on Talal Assad, you suggest that on the one hand, you find him very helpful. On the other hand, he doesn't move the needle when it comes to talking about jihad as, as a kind of terrorism. He, he raises many questions about it, but then leaves it there. Tell me about, tell me about that. Tell me about how you experienced Talal Assad, uh, you know, when, and, and his critiques, which are very important and formative to me. And at the same time, I see some of the same limitations or silences. Uh, and then how do you think your book moves the needle? Yeah, thanks so much for raising this. Um, so for listeners who may not be aware, um, Talal Assad is, uh, you know, a very, very influential anthropologist of Islam, also happens to be the son of, uh, of Muhammad Assad. Um, and um, Talal Assad has had a number of really important contributions um, in the anthropology of Islam and, um, and also kind of the anthropology of secularism, right? And really encouraging people to treat secularism as uh, as something that can't be taken for granted and that also has to be critiqued um, as a form of power, right? And and it's and and sec- secularism not just as you know the not religious, but as a form of power that gets to decide what counts as religious and what doesn't count as religious and to enforce that boundary. Um, so all of that work has been really um, you know foundational for myself for many other scholars and. Um, so Assad also wrote this really interesting book. I think it came out in 2007 called On Suicide Bombing. And the book does a really excellent job of explaining why liberals are fascinated and horrified by the act of suicide bombing as a kind of methodology. Um, and really, you know, shows that the, the sort of, um, exceptionalism and the obsession with suicide bombing uh, is really a symptom of a lot of their own anxieties around the nature of politics and the nature of political sacrifice, right? And it's it's a really it's a really helpful and fantastic intervention. Um, and I think you know, in many ways, the spirit of of my work kind of is animated by the similar thing of like, you know, if if all these people are writing obsessively about a particular topic, um, you have to ask yourself what is it that makes them so obsessed with the topic and to frame that topic in that way, right? I think that's a necessary first step before you can kind of come up with an alternative narrative of what that thing is. Um, but the thing that the book doesn't do is it's, it's so invested in, in kind of pulling apart how 
you know, liberal Westerners, however we might define that category, how they think about suicide bombing, that it's not, it doesn't really tell us that much about the actual suicide bombers. And I don't think it pretends to, even though the title of the book is on suicide bombing. Um, So again, we're back to the question of, you know, yeah, rejecting the kind of dominant discourse or the security discourse is a starting point, but that can't be where we end up, right? That by itself is, 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 yeah, it's just not enough, right? So, and then interestingly, there are a few times in his writings in passing where, you know, when Assad does talk about um, groups like Al-Qaeda and so on, he sort of says, you know, they, they're, they're ruthless and they're violent, and that's a sign of modernity, and that's what they share with, um, with the states that fight them, right? And again, that is in some ways, it's a very critical move because it sort of challenges the moral superiority that, you know, the U.S. government or the West kind of um, take upon themselves. Um, so in that sense, I, I appreciate where it's coming from. Um, but analytically, it's not that helpful, right? Like, yes, it's true that Al-Qaeda is modern and is just as modern as the United States. Um, so, you know, this is one of the, this is what I meant earlier when I talked about critical arguments that are actually not that are kind of self-limiting at the end of the day, right? So one of these arguments that you hear is like, well, you know, these people are not medieval. They're actually really modern, um, which I think is both true and also not super interesting, right? Or should only be news if you have a very, very low baseline slash quasi-racist way of looking at things, right? So I think, the, you know, we have to be a little bit more... Um, we have to keep advancing the argument, right? Not all critiques of the war on terror framework, I think, are equally insightful or equally helpful, um, especially if we're talking about 2021 versus 2010 versus 2005, right? So anyway, so Assad has said, you know, in passing, you know, okay, yeah, these groups are, you know, they're, he kind of situates them as, as modern and as temporarily coeval with, say, the United States um, and attributes the ruthlessness of their violence to a kind of political calculating rationality that the modern nation state has. Um, So I don't disagree with that. I just think it's a very, very broad claim that doesn't help us understand the things that are different and that are particular to these groups, right? And, you know, anthropology in many ways is always about challenging uh, claims that all humans do X by coming up with all of the examples, right? Or challenging claims that these particular humans are super duper unique by saying, well, actually there's like this shared thing that they do with everyone else, right? So there's a little bit of like a, a contrarian impulse in, in anthropology in that sense. Um, but yeah, so, you know, my, the, where I depart from Asset is to say, yes, these groups are modern, but, you know, everyone is modern in a way. So where, you know, where do we go from there? And the argument about universalism is one way of doing that because, um, the first half of the book, you know, uh, really tells the story of these jihad fighters who came to Bosnia, shows all the different trajectories that they took and how they kind of related to each other. The second half of the book situates them in relationship to uh, socialist non-alignment, to UN peacekeeping, and to the global war on terror, which are other universalist projects that are a lot bigger and more powerful than the jihad. And there, you know, on the one hand, by putting them together, um, that's, I hope, a productive move because that's not what most readers um, are accustomed to. Um, 
But then in comparing them, you can also start drawing out the differences again, right? Because as I mentioned, there's a huge imbalance in power and many other differences between these jihad mobilizations and say the war on terror or UN peacekeeping. And yeah, having a way of thinking about those differences without kind of totally, you know, uh, otherizing these guys as, you know, backwards, medieval, whatever, whatever, is, I think, a really important challenge. And that's, you know, that's not really Assad's project, right? And I also think, um, to be to be really fair, there's this question of um, who we should expect to, to tackle these issues, right? I feel that, uh, you know, Islamic studies, uh, anthropology of Islam, a lot of these fields have kind of been forced to talk about, you know, um, movements like Al-Qaeda or Islamic State in a way that is, um, that, that kind of puts certain epistemic burdens on those fields that is not, you know, that is, that's problematic and, that, and that's kind of unfair, right? And it's not, it's not to detract from the potential authority that scholars in those fields might have if they want to, to say something or to, or to apply their skills to those debates. But I think there's also this question of, you know, to what extent should those fields be asked to bear the explanatory burden um, of talking about these groups, right? So there, again, I think there's another, it connects to this other question of to what extent is knowledge of and fidelity to various traditions of Islamic learning, you know, important, like, how do we talk about them in relation to these groups, right? Because one of the other critiques that's out there is, you know, like, they're not really good Muslims, or they they misunderstand, or they misinterpret, which I think is, you know, that that line of argument gets us to a lot of weird places, right? And I think that's something else that, you know, folks have been sort of struggling with and in, in how to navigate the, the pressures of kind of anti-Muslim expectations and audiences, while at the same time being true to the kind of diversity of opinions um, about, about all this stuff. Right, just to build on, I guess, the, um, the last comment, I did have a little more sort of the theoretical direction if you wanted to go in that. But before that, if <clears throat> you don't, as I understand, you don't talk about jihad in general, you talk about jihad in Bosnia, you don't talk about ISIS. And yet one could read and say, well, perhaps you're also talking about ISIS. So tell us about it, because one could say that what's happening in Bosnia is just so completely different from what ISIS is saying doctrinally, although in terms of the practices of, of practice of jihad, there may be some similarities. The fact that they are universal fighters, right, there is some similarity, uh, that they are traveling to a place to support certain Muslims, that's that's common. But uh, on the one hand, you find that among Bosnia, uh, uh, this this katiba, uh, there is a very clear sense of the limits and respect for the existing nation state, and and almost you almost see a growth of recognition of people's culture and whatnot. And you have the exact opposite uh, in the accounts that you read of ISIS there. Uh, but you don't make that comparison. Yep, but I, it's a comparison that I I want to set up. And even the fact that we're having this conversation, the way that you started to lay out the different variables in comparing the two cases, that is exactly the advance in the debate that I want to contribute to, right? Because so much of what's been written, you know, will either do things in strictly doctrinal terms, 
right? Like this category that I don't understand of Salafi jihadism. Like, I don't even know. And we can talk about why that's, why that's misleading, you know, so we, we can either say, okay, well, the Salafis want this and the Ikhwanis want that. And that, you know, you're spelling out criteria for analyzing the different political logics of these jihads, right? And the other thing that, that, you know, that your question doesn't do, which I appreciate is it's not about, um, more moderate versus more extreme interpretations, right? Which again, is not a helpful way of comparing these different cases. So what I, so this gets to a larger point, which is that um, jihadism as a category is, uh, it's, it's really problematic, right? So the, and, and the reason why it's problematic is not simply that, you know, it's anti-Muslim, whatever, whatever. It's that um, if you, you know, there's always, you know, there's always debates among believers about what is jihad and there always will be those debates, but jihadism insofar as it's presented as a kind of secular social science category ends up taking some uh, ends up taking a side in those debates, right. And saying, okay, well, these jihads count for what we call jihadism. And we're going to build a category and write books and have conferences around that category. Um, And the other things that, other Muslims call jihad, we just don't care about that, um, which doesn't make a ton of sense to me. Um, and, you know, I've talked about this in, in other places. So I feel like I'm a bit of a, of a, of a broken record on this, but I think it's, a, I think it's a, a broken record song that more and more people need to hear, um, which is, again, it, it just doesn't, you know, there's, there's like, you can talk about jihad practices in the world. You can talk about things that people call jihad, but to build that into a category of jihad in general, Um, I, it just doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't work for me because, and it's not just, oh, there's violent kinds of jihad versus nonviolent. I think that's a bit of a red herring. I think it's even when we're talking about political violence that people call jihad, there's huge differences even within that, right. And that need to be evaluated through their political logics, in addition to taking seriously the traditions and the resources of the traditions that people are bringing to bear, right? So essentially, you've got folks coming in, you know, at, to varying degrees, reading, reading fiqh, or reading other sort of, you know, texts that we can call classical or what have you. But they're also operating in a, a, a contemporary world that's not really organized along those categories. And they're, they're doing both of these things at the same time. And that, I think, is what is really important to... Um, to sort of acknowledge and and um, and to keep in mind. You no, know, I think that you pointed in a very interesting direction. So the way I understood it, that look, you have people using the word jihadism for uh, uh, violent um, action, whether it's and but it it takes so many different forms. Its justifications religiously may be different, and that. Um, it may be, even, even in the way that it's perceived by others, it may be seen as defensive or offensive, or it may be seen as, well, you know, this kind of jihad was pro-Western, this was uh, anti-Western. There are all these other things. And even among, even among Muslims, the justifications are varied and, and complex. And therefore, it shouldn't be a category about which generalizations could be made based on, you know, one case, and then uh, you go and expect the same features in, in everywhere else, uh, or worse yet, make policy about anything that you label as jihadism based on 
yeah. uh, your favorite case. And so in terms of ISIS, um, the, I mean, part of it also is that when I finished the dissertation that the book is based on, it was just as the situation in Syria was, was heading to armed conflict. And I kind of had to make a, it was a bit of a fork in the road moment where I thought, okay, I'm going to either follow these events and incorporate them as kind of, you know, a major part of this study, or I'm just going to have to draw a line and produce the book that I need to produce and hope that, you know, at some point it can, it can be brought into conversation with things that happen later. And I chose the, the second path because I, I realized that, and part of this has to do just with like the, the time frame of scholarly production, especially in anthropology, that I, if I was just constantly trying to, um, you know, chase the last update, that it would also produce the risk of, of a book that, um, you know, has a, has a sort of, that gets, out, that gets dated very easily. Right. Um, so I sort of said, okay, obviously I'm very interested in what's happening in Syria. I do follow it, but, um, but I, you know, it will not be a major part of this book. Um, but that being said, you know, the, um, it is part of the, the broader category of transnational um, mobilizations. Right. And so what's important about all of these cases is that, as I mentioned earlier, folks are defying the nation state system and its expectations. Right now, what I think is what's interesting about these two cases in particular is that Bosnia is one of the few times where transnational mujahids um, are working for a state that is recognized in the kind of international community. Right. I think the only other case that's like that in recent years is probably um, in the the Yemeni war in or civil war in 1994, where some veterans of Afghanistan came and fought on the side of Ali Abdullah Saleh. Um, what's particular about ISIS and the thing about ISIS that I've always found really interesting is that um, it's kind of like a double secessionist movement, right? Like they're they're carving out parts of Iraq and parts of Syria, and the governing logics of those two different regimes always marked. Uh, Dawla, right? And so they're doing this thing of, it's it's not just like a sort of, you know, one of the crutches that we use in these debates is like, oh, these groups are against the nation state. They're just dissolving all borders into like kind of pure nothingness and it's nihilism. And, you know, it's very kind of, it's kind of a cliche at this point. Um, with, with Dawla, what's interesting is that, you know, they're really trying to build something on top of the existing institutional legacies of these two very different um, states. And that I think has inflected all sorts of things. Um, Also um, the extent to which, and again, there's been some writing about this, like how many of these guys are like ex Bathis or whatever, which is, I think another interesting question, but one that, you know, is kind of, I just don't have all the empirical data on it. Um, I also think the, influence um, and importance of people from outside the region in Daula, I, I suspect it's been a bit overstated. Again, I don't really know. I haven't done the research myself, but I, 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 it's, I think it's a much more uh, Iraqi and Syrian entity than folks tend to give it credit for. Um, so that in that sense, it is, uh, you know, you can kind of compare and contrast with say the Bosnia case where you've got a small number of people who, you know, a small number of foreign volunteers in, in a much larger kind of like local Bosnian army, right? Um, here, you've got people coming in, you know, um, and 
you know, fighting on behalf of uh, an entity that's not recognized by the international community, but is also cobbling together pieces of two different recognized states um, and still marked by the border between them in many ways. Um, so that's, yeah, that's just a very different set of dynamics. And even though, yes, there is a common kind of, you know, common base of, yeah, people crossing borders in a world composed of states. And that, I think, puts these two cases on one side and say other cases of contemporary jihad that exist primarily within a specific nation state on the other hand. So in that case, I'm thinking of, you know, Hamas, Hezbollah, uh, Taliban, arguably, um, or groups like, you know, the, the groups in the Algerian civil war or that were fighting in Egypt in the 1990s. Um, but again, it's even, even just having this conversation is exact is part of the advance I want to argue for in, in, in how we think about these things, right? Like we're, 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 we're comparing and contrasting these groups and we're plotting them along different kinds of political logics alongside of the kind of um, relations that they might have with like doctrine or, or other sorts of other, other forms of Islamic knowledge. Um, and that, yeah, again, we're, we're not in the same zone as, you know, who's more extreme than the other or who is, you know, who's a Salafi and who's a Sufi or whatever. Exactly. And yeah, we have your, your book to thank for, for making this very clear. Um, absolutely. Dara, I would like to take you back to an earlier point you made. Now, you, you talked about Salafi jihadism as a misleading notion. Can you please expand on this? Um, many political scientists argue that there is this conveyor belt to terrorism and the Salafi creed and fiqh uh, lends itself to this type of jihad mobilization. To what extent do you do you critique that type of logic? Well, so I think the basic problem with that logic is you can't draw a straight line from religious doctrines to political outcomes, including violence. And anyone with elementary history, elementary knowledge of uh, the history of, of Western colonialism should know that many of the violent forms of resistance in Muslim societies to European colonialism were led and organized by Sufis, right? So I don't think there's any inherent uh, connection between these doctrinal positions and and the outcomes. Um, I think that, uh, okay, so, and and also, and this is sort of what I was saying about about jihadism earlier. um, We all know, of course, that there's, and, and the experts, quote unquote, will concede that like most Salafis are, you know, not violent, right? And we're not violent in the way that they care about. Um, so for example, uh, uh, I mean, th- okay. The problem with the Salafi, cate- Salafi jihadist category is actually just a narrower version of the Muslim and terrorism category, right? Which is that on the one hand, you recognize that not all people in this category, not all Muslims, not all Salafis are terrorists, but you still want to attribute the violence to the membership in that group. Um, that doesn't make a ton of sense. Also, what happens when you define these groups, but then you've got other folks engaged in violence, but who don't fit your criteria, right? So you've got books that say, okay, Salafi jihadis are, uh, they reject the nation state, right? And then you bring along someone like Abdullah Azam, right? One of the most famous jihad theorists and practitioners of the 20th century 
who identifies as Salafi, but who does not reject the nation state, right? So then you just say, okay, well, I guess they're, they're not Salafi jihadis. They're just Salafis who happen to do jihad, right? So this is where the category kind of just breaks down logically. I mean, just putting aside, you know, the way that it's used politically to oppress people and so on, it just doesn't, it doesn't make a ton of sense. And, um, you know, so again, this is where um, jihadism doesn't work for me. And putting a doctrinal label on it really is just, it's, it's, it's not just putting a bandaid on a wound. It's almost like creating a, a different wound on top of it. So it's, um, I, I think, I think the fairest or the strongest version of, of this argument, of their argument, is something like maybe under current historical conditions, we can correlate followers of Salafi doctrine with certain kinds of anti-state violence, right? And there are reasons you can think of for this, right? So for example, um, you know, uh, insofar as such movements need external support, you can say, okay, well, there are certain regimes that have resources and that are sympathetic to this way of thinking. So that can be a factor in favor, right? Or you could say, okay, insofar as following a particular creed or doctrinal position requires you or encourages you to kind of um, not follow a lot of expectations in the prevailing society that you're part of. And that might make it more possible for you to take certain kinds of risks like engaging in political violence. Maybe there's a correlation there, right? But these are historically contingent and weak, I think, correlations, Um, which is, again, you could say Sufis, right? Sufis have an ascetic tradition an ascetic tradition can be helpful if you want to, um, you know, become militarily active. And that was a correlation and that was a resource that made it possible for many Sufis to, uh, to, to lead jihads in the 19th century, right? But again, that's, that's less about just Sufism as a thing, right? And more about understanding it in its context, um, and of course, the, tr- the intellectual traditions are important, and we need to be attentive to those debates, but again, always kind of situating them. I mean, it's a really basic point at some level, but it needs to be reiterated because of the, just the tendency to say, okay, if you read certain texts, you know, then you're, we have to put you on a watch list, right? Because that's really what that argument is about at the end of the day. Right, Daryl, and I think that uh, if we made this point every single day, um, for the rest of our lives, it's still, I don't think it'll still get through because there is a real deep tendency uh, for us, you know, just as departments and schools within a department fight each other, uh, Muslims themselves, like theologically, are interested in figuring out which theology is the best. And therefore, they are often uh, alibis in providing these arguments to CIA or FBI, whatever. Right? So they are very interested in mapping these. Uh, so the Salafis are likely to say the Sufis are always sellouts, and the Sufis, if they see the winds in blowing in that direction, they're likely to say the Salafis are always uh, these terrorists, right? So this is very much inherently a Muslim problem, not merely security studies problem. In fact, I suspect these security studies people simply often pick this up from their informants and then turn those into institutions 
and 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 in fact strategies of war. But initially, I think that this is very much a tendency that is really religious sectarian polemics that become sublimated. Yeah, that's a really great point. It's like it's like the Hoarij are the original terrorists, right? Like you know, yeah. uh, Hoarij and terrorists—they're both just like terms that they're just labels that you use on the people you don't like. They don't necessarily have like uh, you know meaningful kind of content. Can I ask, I mean, just to, to follow on from that, I mean, what has been going on here? Why is it that think tanks and academics have got it so wrong when they insist on this linear approach and they overemphasize the ideological uh, you know, merits of a, of a particular group and, and they devise these labels of Salafi jihadism? Um, and do you feel that it's just ignorance or do you feel that these studies are being subverted for political ends? This is uh, one of the all of the above type situations. Um, I, you know, I think, I think there is clearly a political incentive structure to certain kinds of arguments, right? Not necessarily that a person gets, you know, a written order from the state, but I think it's, you know, certain arguments are going to find a receptive audience more than others. Right. Um, you know, the, the book that I've written does not have a very large market, right? And, and there are reasons for that. Um, I think the point that Alvamir just made about, you know, uh, sort of intra-Muslim debates and the way that those are weaponized or amplified by state imperatives is also really important. Um, so, I, I, you know, I, but I also want to emphasize that, you know, the war on terror is not something that will be defeated by um, producing better books or better scholarship. Obviously, that's nice. That could be helpful. Um, but there's just a, a, a need for just broader um, mobilization and organizing. And folks, you know, already have, they already know enough in terms of what they need to know to oppose the state, right? The, the real challenge is, is making sure that challenges to that kind of power are actually effective. Um, although to the extent that mobilizing is weakened by folks kind of reproducing some of these ideas and maybe, you know, turning against each other. Um, this can be um, a helpful intervention, right? Um, and, and that is one thing that I, I would like to sort of, you know, put out there, right? That, you know, there are certain moves of reassurance that happen in, in, these, in talking about jihadism and so on that I, I think are potentially problematic and, and should be revisited and reassessed. Um, I wanted to take this in a slightly different direction based on an earlier point that uh, Daryl was making about universalism. Uh, but in fact, before I do that, um, another connection that, that was suggested by his earlier comment is, you know, whether Salafis and say folks who are more <clears throat> affiliated with uh, uh, movements such as the Muslim Brotherhood and its in, in its in Islamism, as it's sometimes called more narrowly, uh, conceived Islamism, that is, uh, folks who have embraced the nation state, right? And he has an example of a fellow, uh, a Sudanese um, activist slash diplomat slash, um, you know, uh, Islamist, Hassanain, and as somebody who uh, is in this circle in Bosnia and who is not uh, there. To, in fact, he doesn't support the jihad of these people uh, who are coming and traveling. Uh, so he's very supportive of Bosnians, but he doesn't think that this kind of uh, 
crossing of nation state boundaries in order to support your brothers that that's the best way to do perhaps right and and then he is then used to sort of diffuse that situation later tell us more about that so you have islamism of a certain kind that in fact is reverential of these nation state boundaries and and modern institutions yeah so this character um el fateh hassanen um if you look at the secondary literature on the jihad in bosnia um if you look at some of the like um ongoing propaganda put out by serb and croat nationalists about bosnian muslim slash bosniaks being all you know islamists and so on um this guy uh fatah hassanin is kind of a boogeyman he's a recurring character and the way that he's presented is you know he's um, cause he was very close to the, to Bosnia's first, um, president, uh, Alia Izbegovic, right. Who was kind of the, the national leader of kind of Bosnia Muslims slash Bosniaks. And, um, so he's seen as kind of like, he represents a kind of pan Islamic extremism that by extension infects Izbegovic and by extension infects Bosnian Muslims, right? So Serb and Croat nationalists are constantly trying to, you know, portray Bosnian Muslims as part of this global Islamic threat. Many Bosnians, you know, kind of who are tuned to trying to win the sympathies of Europeans and Americans, you know, try to distance themselves from sort of pan-Islamism. And, you know, there's a whole other debate going on there. Anyway, so that, that's what Hassanin kind of stands for, right? He's the kind of like pan-Islamic boogeyman. He's Mr. Jihad. Um, so what I found when I started looking into his life, and also he published a number of memoirs that are really interesting, is that uh, he is someone who went to Yugoslavia during the socialist era um, and was really kind of uh, one of these students, Arab students, who went to Yugoslavia because it was um, a, a leader in the non-aligned movement. Um, and he was from a kind of nationalist family. Uh, he has a brother called Sukarno Hassanin. His parents named him after the Indonesian leader who organized the 1955 Bandung um, Afro-Asian Conference. Um, so he comes from that kind of anti-colonial um, background, but also was a kind of early um, Muslim Brotherhood uh, supporter in the I mean, it's in Sudan, it's kind of what we call the Muslim Brothers. It's a little complicated because there were different movements that came. But for the purposes of our discussion, we can broadly say he's kind of Ehwanji, right? So he goes to Yugoslavia in the 50s. He studies medicine. He learns the language. Um, he organizes Arab students who are, you know, broadly speaking, Islamist in orientation. And he becomes friends with, with, uh, with Izabegovic. And later on, uh, becomes a kind of solidarity activist working full-time to support Bosnian independence and to support Izabegovic, uh, mostly from Vienna, and uh, has been accused of um, essentially arms trafficking and like smuggling weapons to Bosnia, because during the war, the UN imposed an arms embargo um, on ex-Yugoslavia that disadvantaged the Muslims because Serbs, the Serb nationalists kind of inherited the old Yugoslav army and the Croat nationalists had a coastline so they could easily kind of smuggle in arms. But the Bosnians were, were um, you know, they, they didn't have access to weapons. So Hassanein was accused of being connected to the Saudis, to the Iranians, to bringing in weapons, doing all these things. How much of that is true? It's not really clear. Um, but what is interesting is that 
yeah, his relationship to the actual jihad fighters who went is uh, strained at best. He doesn't show up in their fundraising lists. I've never um, interviewed someone who kind of, you know, thought of him as a person who was deeply involved. And he was pretty critical of this stuff. Um, he wanted to support Bosnia. He wanted to support Bosnia in the name of the Ummah. And he was not a pacifist, right? He was helping them get guns. But he just thought that, you know, having other Muslims, that, that, that what the Bosnian Muslims needed was support. They needed diplomatic support. They needed weapons. They needed money. They didn't need fighters, right? They had a larger army than the other side, right? They just didn't have the proper equipment. Um, so he was pretty skeptical uh, of these guys. And, and of course, um, what the literature on him that presents him as this kind of pan-Islamic, you know, boogeyman, what it doesn't acknowledge is that um, he is, he's part of a Sufi order, right? Um, so of course he has a kind of skepticism towards these Salafis, right? Um, even though this is also interesting, there were times when the Salafi Arabs fighting in Bosnia developed close relationships with Bosnian Sufis, right? Sometimes they were Sometimes they felt that they had more in common with each other than with other Bosnian Muslims who were not even practicing. Other times they did have tensions and they did kind of get into to, to sort of, uh, um, you know, disputes. Um, but what the Hassanain case shows us is that, um, is that pan-Islamism and pan-Islamic solidarity can take many different forms. No one owns it. No one has a monopoly on it, right? And so much of this literature um, kind of, assumes that good Muslim activism is anchored within the nation state and transnational Muslim activism or pan-Islamic solidarity is necessarily Salafi and is necessarily terroristic. And um, part of what the book really tries to do is to, is to just decouple a lot of these things, right? And to show that, yes, there's variety. There's not just variety among Muslims, right? But there's also variety among pan-Islamisms, Right, and that they are competing with each other, and Bosnia is a great example of that because, of course, Turkey, Iran, Saudi Arabia were all trying to present themselves as the saviors of Bosnia in very different ways, right? But even if we take it outside of the nation-state framework, you know, the what Hassanein represents is a certain kind of uh, Ikhwan-leaning solidarity with Bosnia, um, and what the what the Katiba represents is a more Salafi-leaning variant of that, and you know they overlapped, but they were not the same thing. And um, as I mentioned in the book, after the war, um, the US put a lot of pressure on the Bosnians to expel these fighters. And in particular, one of the leaders of the Katiba, Abu al-Mali, this Algerian, uh, the US threatened Bosnia, uh, they threatened to cut off aid to Bosnia if he didn't leave the country. And Hassanein was the one who actually helped him uh, get to Malaysia because of his own contacts, right, with people in Turkey. Oh, I should mention that Hassanein is also a friend with Erdogan, right? Um, so, he, you know, he, he kind of helped Abu al-Mali get from Bosnia to Turkey and from Turkey to Malaysia, right? So these are, so we can think about the different kinds of networks and the different kinds of uh, movements that are out there, but then the individuals involved can kind of move between them, right? And that's also why um, when we talk about universalisms, right, many different universalisms that speak in the name of Islam, um, many different universalisms that speak in the name of the West. And individuals as people can and do move between these different projects and these different orientations, even within, you know, their own lifetime or even within the same, you know, year. Alphamera, I want to bring your 
Ummatik's project in here. Um, in many ways, you endorse a type of transnational Islam that motivates those who are the subject of, of today's discussion. Um, I mean, to what extent do you feel that uh, this global jihad has in a way harmed uh, this form of uh, Muslim political awareness and consolidated the power and legitimacy of the nation state? And and where does your Ummatik's project take the discussion beyond, I suppose, the intra-political Islamic debates uh, about Islamic governance that have dominated Muslim discourse for many decades? Yeah, thank you, Mohammed, for, for asking about that. So um, I had drawn uh, Daryl's attention to the Ummatik's uh, colloquium, uh, which is a gathering of intellectuals um, as scholars throughout the world who are interested in thinking beyond the nation state, thinking about the Muslim Ummah, and this includes people who are thinking, uh, you know, thoughtfully and sympathetically and scholarly fashion like Daryl. Um, and so the, the purpose is to get that conversation um, in the academic mainstream throughout the world. Now, uh, I, you know, Personally, I take I may take a position that may not be one that I will settle on finally, or that's not that's that's about about Ummatic. So on this question, for example, whether jihad helps or hurts Ummatic, well, I think that really just depends. And then going back to Daryl's point, there isn't one jihad, right? There, jihad is very much part of Islam. You can't really have Islam without effort, and jihad means effort, and sometimes effort just has to be collective and organized. And, and, and sometimes it means um, political violence as well. Um, but so I think that uh, jihad itself in the 80s, in for instance, like 80s is the quintessential era of, or the decade of jihad in the Afghanistan. And, and it is, I think in, in part, the one thing that, uh, and perhaps uh, that also affects uh, the situation in Bosnia, the context for Daryl's book is really because it's right at the heels of 1980s. And you had uh, this uh, energy uh, and cachet, religious cachet for jihad available at the end of that decade that then flows into Bosnia. But um, I don't think that jihad uh, efforts and mujahideen, whether Salafis or others or Taliban, um, are really a, a exceptional action. In some ways, they keep the idea of the Ummah alive. They uh, remind people of this solidarity that Muslims have historically had. And if you look at the um, thick manuals, one way to read them in the global era is that we are responsible for our brethren uh, elsewhere. And if you know, the, the thick manuals will tell you that if uh, Muslims are attacked in one place and if they can't defend themselves, then the responsibility falls to those who are adjacent to them. And if they can't do it, then the, those beyond. And in a sense, you can really understand global jihad and the kinds of people who are um, flowing into Bosnia in that context very easily. You don't need to be a Salafi to do that. Right? This is very straightforward. Uh, but on the other hand, there is this recognition of, of the political realities, which 
this fellow Hassanain seems to realize that, well, that's not the real problem. That the, the real problem is that we live in nation states and this is the real political issue that these people don't have these resources and that's what they need. But doing that would not have made uh, Bosnia um, really viscerally felt uh, because it's only when you visit a place um, that you really realize uh, what it means to be Muslim in a very different way and to support people across all these differences. So I think that this kind of jihad, moving people when people move um, for one reason or another and supporting that, I think this does uh, help. Now, of course, when you if you ask me about ISIS kind of jihad, I think that that really has hurt. Uh, uh, Muslims and the idea of the Umar, the idea of the caliphate, uh, and and it has hurt because I think of the moral choices that people have made. It's not because inherently what they're trying to do is evil, but they have chosen policies and and uh, to 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 really uh, uh, commit acts that go against uh, Islamic norms uh, that are widely acknowledged. Um, and to come up with justifications that almost go out of their way to justify violence. It's not that it's all impossible within any complex tradition to justify violence, but they have done stuff that I would say is truly bad, truly evil. And, uh, and that hurts the prospect of uh, transnational Muslim solidarity. Um, but I don't think that it is a, you know, sort of a unique event that that uh, one should uh, one should single out uh, you know ultimately if you look at the amount of violence that ISIS has engaged in just through the number of deaths it's like something like the upper limit is like 30 to 40,000 people whereas um, the nation-state violence just by the Syrian nation-state what's happening is something uh, along the millions Right, so it's just the, the amount of nation-state violence. Just a quick question, Olamir. Sorry to interrupt. To what extent do you think the decision to to um, you know arrogate the authority of of Khalifa, I mean, to, you know, how would you situate that? Because that's a bit different from the sort of you know that's connected to a solidarity claim, but it's not you know a necessary part of it. So, do you? weigh that kind of differently in terms of the, the harms and so on that, that might be involved? So if I understand your question, you're talking about, well, who has a right to declare a caliphate, that sort of thing, right? Yes. Right. Mm-hmm. So I think that that's part of the fundamental problem uh, that ISIS has to face, that doctrinally Muslims have to uh, declare a caliphate or Muslims have to sort of, you represent Muslims. There has to be some kind of representation. Um, and ISIS solved that problem by just excommunicating all Muslims who do not, right, who do not accept this, their representation. And that is where a lot of violence, I think, uh, is justified. Not that they wouldn't have engaged in otherwise, but they justify it precisely because of their doctrinal imperative. Uh, whereas if you compare that to Taliban, for example, they never claim that they are caliphs. And when they are pressed on this issue, they're actually very realistic. They say, we are just an imara of That's our authority. We do not speak for the rest of the Muslims. So what they're doing, if you look at the traditional caliphate doctrine, you know, Jawaini in the 11th century says that if you do not have authority over other Muslims, then you can just be an Amir who is upholding Islam. 
but you cannot be a caliph because to be a caliph means that uh, the rest of the Muslims accept you. So what they do is that they uh, excommunicate other Muslims by using various doctrinal tricks, but their need for doing that is really comes out of their need to make this really grandiose claim about the caliphate. That Yeah, that really is what uh, uh, makes ISIS exceptional in my view. It's not just Al-Qaeda and Taliban and all of these other jihadist movements. You can critique them and they need to be critiqued from an Islamic perspective, but ISIS does something that even that, that's the reason why all these other movements are in fact saying to ISIS that you guys have crossed these limits that should not, not be crossed. But anyway, I wanted to go back and, and talk a little bit more or perhaps ask you, Daryl, about um, what kind of thematic discourse do you think um, is one that is useful, and I know you come from the perspective of as an anthropologist, as a scholar, as an outsider looking in, but also, of course, as a citizen of the world, where you see, um, you know, Muslim countries collapsing, and um, there the the you know, or Huntington would say bleeding borders, and then in fact, he would even say bleeding inners of the Muslim world. And some kind of uh, synthesis and reunification, um, I see that as really important uh, discourse that has to be imposed not top down, but really uh, uh, supported socially, intellectually. Um, what do you see that? What do you see as, as possibilities I think the point that you just made about authority and khalafat is an excellent example of how you can think of a bottom-up and potentially more open sense of, um, you know, belonging and solidarity and an animation of some idea of the ummah, right? We're even that argument about authority, as I mentioned, this is already a much more advanced and a much more useful debate than how these things are often um, talked about. And it seems like one challenge is acknowledging the need for some kind of institutionalization to channel the energies and the sentiments that are out there without succumbing to the temptation to usurp or arrogate forms of authority where legitimacy has not been built up, right? Um, I, I, I think one of the other lessons of, of the sort of Arab Spring decade is that, um, you know, spontaneity is politically useful at times, but also opens the door to co-optation and division and all sorts of other agendas. Um, but then I don't know if the answer is, you know, sort of pure Leninist, um, you know, party state kind of, I mean, it might be in some contexts, but the, there is a question of, you know, what is a healthy conversation around institutionalization? What does that look like? Right. And yeah, to go from, Hey, we're some people in Iraq and some people in Syria who got some territory together to, Hey, you know, now we can, we can order things upon all Muslims around the world is also, it's, it's a sign of a certain, um, you know, ungrounded politics, right? 
Um, I don't just mean ungrounded in a very kind of like local legitimacy sense, but even in the sense of just, you know, like the need to actually think about building relations of legitimacy that are horizontal and that are, and that are transnational. And that's really hard to do. Right. And it is especially hard to do in the face of all of these challenges. Um, And, but I think that's, you know, I think orienting towards having those discussions is certainly, at least to me, that's more productive and that's more interesting than, um, you know, than some of the other things that we've seen up to this point. It's really been great to, to have you have you uh, both on today. As always, I would like to take this opportunity to extend my thanks to my team, without whom I could not have made this project work. Riaz Hassan, Musab Muhammad, Reem Walid, Adil Alam, Yusra Zainuddin, Ahmed Sirag, Ahaz Atif and Omar Abdusalam. These brothers and sisters have joined the project from around the world and give up their valuable time. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reward them for their sincerity. Please keep them in your du'as.